And now we'll have a reading from the Gospels. This is a reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Pray then in this way. Our parent and provider in heaven, holy is your name. May your majestic rule come. May your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from that which is evil. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm your lead pastor here at Zao. And I just, can I just name the like sleepy, rainy fall morning here? I don't know about you all. I'm actually really into it. I love a rainy, sleepy Sunday. So I'm glad to spend it with you in some of this subdued energy. Sometimes we're a little more raucous than today, but uh, I'll take it. I'll take a cozy fall day. And today we are talking about a prayer that we pray most times when we gather, usually during communion. Now, this prayer uh, that we just heard from the Gospel of Matthew, um, it's sometimes called the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. What are people's associations with this prayer? Are we into this prayer? Do we like this prayer? Do we dislike this prayer? Positive, negative associations? Yes. Yes. Okay. So for those of you who couldn't hear Emma, she shared that in the church she grew up with, she grew up in, everybody said that prayer in the same tone of voice, in the same drone, over and over and over again for 20 years. Does that sound familiar? All right. Yeah. I actually really resented this prayer as a child because I grew up in a, a church for the first several years of my life that was a little bit more liturgical and there was some of this energy where like you know people would be chatty and greeting each other and whatever and then we'd say our father who art in heaven right (laughs) as a kid I really like I didn't get it I didn't get it and the words didn't really mean a whole lot to me so all I could infer from was tone and the tone was a little bit mono if you will Um, so it was just it was it was pretty flat And so whatever experience people were having with this prayer seemed pretty internal, and I couldn't particularly relate to it. Um, So we've got this prayer that is a pretty embedded part of a lot of Christian spaces that a lot of us have said or heard many, many times, but we may not have any deeply meaningful associations with it. I actually, you know, kind of tuned it out as a kid because I was like, I don't know what this is. This is the boring part where everybody says stuff that I don't remember. And I have to either pretend like I do remember or, you know, just not be seen. We were talking about this in Echo this week. A little plug for Echo. It's a monthly discussion on Wednesday, on a Wednesday night here in the living room where we talk about stuff that's come up during the past month of sermons. Um, it's a great way to, to hear from other people what they're thinking about of what we're talking about on Sunday mornings um, or to air your thoughts and questions. If you have something 
that sparks your imagination or you have a question or whatever, um, know that there's always that number on the screen, um, and we would love you to text. Um, and even if you text your observations and questions and don't show up to Echo on Wednesday, um, there will still be people there who will receive your, your thoughts and feedback and be sparked by that. And so we were talking about um, a lot of things. I don't even remember how we got on it, but in this past Echo discussion last Wednesday, um, somebody shared that they really sincerely dislike this prayer. And there was kind of in the room a bit of like a, no, yeah, you know, you're not, you're not alone, you're not alone. And so many of us were made to say this prayer, that there is a sense of like obligation that feels pretty icky around the Lord's Prayer. So is there value to these kinds of memorized, rote routines in worship? We tend not to do as many of them. There are different patterns of worship that emphasize or de-emphasize that more kind of traditionally liturgical repetition. And we tend not to do spoken repetition. Uh, and and I, I totally hear when people are like, oh, I don't want to just say the same words over and over again without meaning. And I don't want you to do that either. But I want us to think about something else that we do in this space pretty often, um, which is uh, which is related to music. So how many of you feel really connected to God or to each other during the music part of worship? A lot of nods, a lot of hands. Me too. Like, that part's really, really meaningful to me. Any idea how many times we sing a single chorus in most of our songs? I think it's somewhere around 87. We sing choruses over and over and over again, right? And that repetition is a gift that repetition allows us to move from the surface of the words to a meditation on the word. From the idea of the song to the feeling of worship. And repetition and, and joining into the same prayer over and over again, when done with the right supports, when done willingly, right, not forced, uh, by family members or authority figures, can be an enormous gift. It can be a stream that you slip back into, a memory not only in your imagination but in your body of what it's like to feel connected to God. And that's just my little pitch for memorized prayer. And if it doesn't work for you, that is fine. <laughs> I so appreciate Taylor's testimony today and I think it was really well-timed because a lot of us have a very performative relationship to the Lord's Prayer or to the Our Father. And if that is our relationship to this prayer, we can actually just lay it down. We can lay it down and walk away and discover other connections to God. But if you have a positive relationship to this prayer or you want one, I invite you to come with me on a little journey today of exploration about what it is. Now, we actually did a whole series on this prayer a couple of years ago, um, and I went to look at my notes, and I was like, oh yeah, that is seven weeks. We sp I spent seven weeks talking about this. Can you believe? Yes, you can. You can. I get, uh, I get excited about stuff. There's so much richness here, and that series and this sermon draw a lot from an incredible book called The Greatest Prayer by John Dominic Crossan. Now, Crossan is someone I reference a lot, sometimes with a co-author, Marcus Borg. Um, this is a very political uh, and theological reading of this, this text, um, and, and I love it. It's, it's liberationist. And 
Crossan actually argues that this is, he calls it, he calls this prayer a radical manifesto and a hymn of hope for humanity in language addressed to all the earth. Has anybody ever thought of the Lord's Prayer as a radical manifesto? A hymn of hope? That's not my vibe with it either. So I'm like, all right, cross in, like, take us on a journey. Make your case. But I actually really think that there is a, a radical, liberatory, revolutionary ethic in this prayer. And it's really interesting to me when it comes up. Because we think of this, like, a lot of times we're like, okay, Jesus said pray in this way. And so we think only pray in this way. Prayer is enormous. Prayer is um, shorthand for connection to and relationship with the divine. When Jesus would, like, disappear for hours or days at a time, and people be like, where is that dude? We need him to speak to this thousands of people crowd on this hill over here. And it's like, oh, he's on that hill over there praying. I don't think that Jesus was reciting the Our Father indefinitely for hours and days. Jesus spends time with God in prayer in a context that is flexible and personal and contextual within relationship. So prayer should never be limited to a certain pattern or set of words. Prayer is actually about connecting to the power of God, attuning yourself with the presence of God, and deepening your relationship. I think that's one of the reasons that this prayer that we've been made to say can feel so icky, because it feels like power over someone telling us what to do. Uh, It feels like a failure of attunement, because God is somewhere, but here I am having to do this thing again. And the relationship part feels hollow. Right? So again, if you've had kind of a bummer relationship to this prayer, it might be because those things are not aligned. And if you've had an incredible relationship to this prayer, if the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer has shown up for you in your life in a way that has really brought comfort and connection, know that it's because you've been able, um, through whatever circumstances, to really root yourself in that connection to divinity and to tap into it through this practice. So when we think about this prayer, this is one way to pray. And Jesus is saying, hey, pray in this way, because he's talking about some people who are praying in really, interestingly, performative ways. So in the Gospel of Matthew, um, Jesus is talking about like, hey, don't pray like the people who do it like out on the corner so that everybody's going to see them. Like, listen, that's all they'll get from that. That's all they're going to get out of that is people seeing them being pious. But if you really want to get something out of prayer— Pray, pray like this. This was meant to be an example, not the only final answer. And he's contrasting it with what he says, you know, don't pray like the Gentiles. Don't pray with a, pray with a flood of empty words, right? Make your words mean something. How many of us have been in prayer spaces where, like, we have felt a deep meaning attached with whatever moment or words are being articulated, I hope you have. I know I have. How many of us have been in a prayer space where it just feels like a flood of empty words? Yeah, I've been there too. (laughs) It's a real bummer. So Jesus is not saying like, hey, here's a script and the script is going to make the difference. Jesus is saying, pray with your presence, pray with your heart, and if you're looking for words, here's an example. So we don't need to be so directive about this. But the words that he offers are wild. They are wild. And 
when we, when we go through them, I think because they're so familiar to so many of us, it can feel, you know, not that, not that wild. Or if we're learning about it um, as adults, and it, because it's in kind of churchy language, it can feel sort of pious, but in a way that's culturally bound. But there is actually a revolutionary spirit of liberation in this prayer, and it starts with the very beginning. Our Father. That's the part I'm talking about. That is revolutionary. Now, it feels not revolutionary. What does it feel like? The Lord's Prayer? Patriarchal? Anything else? Any other associations with beginning a prayer? Our Father. Yeah. It's a letter to my dad. Yeah. All right. So we got a couple different layers in here, right? And our Father, we're going we're gonna to start with patriarchal. So Jesus didn't start this patriarchal vibe. Jesus is speaking to a patriarchal vibe. The culture in which Jesus is teaching is extremely patriarchal and tribal, right? And so the most important organizations of society, of resources, of connection, of relationship, are patrilineal, which means like from the line, the, like, the, the lineage of a father, and tribal and familial, right? So the central concept of organizing society is a well-run family household or a well-run family farm. And so we have in this understanding God as the head of the household, God as the father. And the head of a household in this system has a social and ethical obligation to provide materially for all members of the household. So the central question of a family structure asked of the father is, does everyone have enough? And if everyone doesn't have enough, then what needs to change? So here we have a community, a culture, a patriarchal culture that says, oh, you got to look to your dad for that stuff, right? If you are a man, you've got to provide for your family lineage. But if you are saying, hey, my father is God. My father is God. I'm actually included in the lineage of all creation. And so what we have here is an inherent critique of the distribution of wealth, power, and resources. When we say our father, we mean I am included in the family of God. When we say our father, we mean that we are children of God. That there are not some who are the blessed sons who are going to get the resources. But that we all together, our family, is under the head of the household, God, who provides for us all. It is inherently a critique of that patriarchal system that prioritizes some families and some figures above others. And it says, fine, you want a patriarchal system? Great. Dad is God, and we're all in it, so we all deserve to be taken care of. It's sort of the same way that Jesus uses language of kingdom and king to say, okay, you want a kingdom? All right, well, I'm Caesar. All right, I'm Caesar and I do things differently. You want to use this language, this structure and framework? Fine, we're going to turn it on its head. Our Father 
is the all-loving, creative God who is intimate and present and provides for all. Our father in this patriarchal system is one who does not show favor or distribute according to these cultural standards of value, but distributes to all because all are beloved, blessed children. Our father sets up this connection, this relationship that gives us all a birthright, an inheritance, and this inheritance is not only to, to material provision, to say we all deserve to be taken care of, and if somebody isn't getting their inheritance, it's because someone is stealing it, right? So we all deserve to be taken care of in this household, but we all then also get an inheritance of being sort of bought into the family business. And what is the family business of God the creator? Creation. We all made in the image of our Father God, bought into the family business of creation, of liberation, of salvation. We have a call on our lives to participate, to run the household, to be good stewards, to fight for one another, to look around and say, hey, my sibling doesn't have enough. Who took more than their share? Our Father means that we, the children of God, have a right and an authority to care for one another, to steward this good earth. Now, if we go back to the prophets, the prophets get real mad about a lot of stuff, right? We love the prophets. Always angry. The always angry prophets are always angry for great reasons, and one of the things that they focus on a lot, there's a phrase you'll hear a lot across the prophets, care for the widow, the orphan, the stranger. Now, these things might feel a little bit separated, right? The widow, somebody who lost a husband, an orphan, a person without parents, a stranger, which would be, um, you know, a resident alien or, or somebody who is a foreigner. But actually, they all represent the same economic dysfunction in a system that is willing to throw people into the gutter. Widows were women who did not have access to the economic system or, or material provision because the men in their lives in this patriarchal system were not there anymore. And so they didn't have access. The prophets say, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if there's no man in this situation. This widow deserves, this woman deserves, this person deserves material provision in the family. It is our communal obligation to care for one another, not to exclude people because they don't have the right access point. Orphans were actually not children without parents. They were children without fathers, right? So a widow and orphans could be in the same family system. Again, these are individuals cut out because they don't have a father. Strangers, too, didn't have access to that same patrilineal system because they were from outside of the lineage. Our father says, our father. We all have a father. Quit it. We all have access here. We all have a right to be here. We all deserve care and love and affection. We all are a part of building this household, this community, this family for one another. And if you're going to try and exclude somebody because they don't have a father, well, that's, you're missing the point because the only valid father in this system is God. And God made that child in God's own beautiful, powerful, creative image. They are a part of the family. And we have an obligation not only not to exclude, 
but to actively include, provide, be connected to. Written into this prayer in the first line is a critique of the systems of power and privilege and wealth and exclusion. It is God's will that we be family to one another, and family in that culture meant provision, meant safety, security, and care at a material as well as emotional level. And that is why this radical revolutionary prayer begins, our Father, shattering, absolutely shattering the patriarchal tribal exclusions of the culture. So this prayer is highly contextual. Our Father meant something wild back then, and it is about leveling a system of empire. There is no longer first and last, right? We are all together. The universal father means breaking of the system of economics that excludes and kills. We all have one father. We all have one tribe. There is no lower status because status dependent on a relationship to a father is already guaranteed by God. This is a metaphor. It's a political critique. It's a revolutionary statement. It's an invitation to radical kingdom building. And it's also a metaphor. It's a metaphor because we don't have precise language for God. All we can do is describe. All we can do is tell stories. And I'll tell you, our Father packs quite a punch as a story. But our metaphors change as our culture changes. Metaphors are extraordinarily culturally bound. And so when we come into a new cultural understanding, when we begin to have new cultural images, meanings, we may need to change our metaphors. Our Father might not work for you in this culture. It might not communicate the same thing that Jesus communicated back in the day when he said, Our Father. And so we need to find other metaphors. We need to, to have a multiplicity of metaphors. We need to find ways that communicate care and liberation for all, the guarantee of connection and not isolation, the obligation we have to care for one another, and, and the critique of those who would steal from their own kin. We need to find other shorthands for that if our father falls too short. We are stewards and co-creators. That is part of our inheritance. But that also then gives us the authority to work with God to find new language. And so I do want to break this open for you and say, hey, let us find the meeting. Let us get to the heart of this prayer. Let us recapture it. And if we need to claim it in new words, we absolutely can. Now, there are other interesting things about our Father Someone shouted out a letter to my dad. There's an interesting thing here. Jesus uses the term Abba. And in Gethsemane, when Jesus is praying to God in a time of great distress, he says, Abba ho pater, which is actually a, ma a mashup of Aramaic and Greek. Now, I think this is really interesting because Jesus in general probably spoke Aramaic most of the time. And so the writers who are writing in Greek are already doing translating. But the writer who wrote that part down 
didn't want to translate Abba. Abba felt pure and holy and important in Jesus' first language, an intimate expression of parenthood. Abba means dad. Ho pater means father. It's Greek. It means the father. So really what Jesus is saying here is dad the father. So we're still holding on to that really important relationship that says I am a part of this lineage. I am a part of this inheritance. I am a part of the family business of co-creation and liberation. And there is an expression here, a really personal expression of intimacy. Now, some people will say that Abba is sort of analogous to Daddy in English. There are others who will push back against that. Abba was a word that people used for a parent. They would use that word when they were very little, and they would still use that word when they were adults. And that's where that daddy thing kind of loses a little bit of its connection. But it is more so than father, which communicates, um, you know, this kind of hierarchical structure. It is dad, which communicates a a relationship, an intimate relationship, a metaphor about parent-child relationship and closeness. It's something that communicates that God is not distant, that Jesus doesn't have to translate into Greek, that Jesus can use the language of his heart to cry out to his parent. As many of you know, I'm a parent to a toddler, and as a non-binary person, I had to make some decisions about how I would ask my child to refer to me. I was so sure. Before she was born, before I was even pregnant, I had these conversations, and I was like, I know what it's going to be. It's going to be this, this, this. Like, this is the formal title. This is the informal title. This is, like, what we'll do, right? I was so sure. And then I got pregnant. And I remember being probably five, six months pregnant and feeling Micah growing inside of me in this, like, really (laughs) intense, intimate way. And I remember seeing some kids walking down the street that looked like they were, like, 9, 10, 11, And I thought, whatever Micah calls me needs to be the thing that is close to her heart that she can call out in the middle of the night when she's scared. The thing that she's going to yell when she walks in the door to see if I'm home. The the thing she's going to say when she's so annoyed with me. And I knew in that moment that I had been wrong about what that was. I knew that my title for her was actually going to be Baba because I could hear her calling out in the night. I could hear her calling out to me when she came home. I could hear her rolling her eyes, Baba. And I knew that that was something that felt real. And it has come true. Like, I can't tell you how wild it is to pick her up from daycare, to see her running across the playground screaming, Baba! And it comes with that same ferocity and joy as the other kids who are shouting, Daddy and Mama. And this is what is happening here when we see Jesus not say the Father, but to say Abba. It's an expression from the depths of his physical being, that connection to a trusted parent. Abba is the dad who we cry out to 
when we're scared, hurt, or lonely. The mom or mama we squeal to when we see her face unexpectedly. The baba who we call for when we're in over our heads and we need some help. Abba is our intimate parent God who created and loves us. Now, when we say the Lord's Prayer, when we say this prayer together at Zao, we offer, in our kind of suggested words, we offer our Creator, our Mother, our Father, our Abba. And that's an invitation to use whatever feels right to you. In seminary, I had a professor who insisted that the correct liturgical choice was to make everyone say the same exact words. And I cannot disagree more. I cannot. Because when we pray together, you may have noticed I say you can pray the words on the screen if you like. If not, if you know this word, in, or if you know this prayer in other language, other phrasing, use the words closest to your heart as we pray together in one spirit. The spirit the revolutionary, the intimate spirit of this prayer is its power. And we can share that spirit using different languages, using different phrasing, using different names for God, because the spirit is that raw honesty that comes from reaching out to your creator. And whether you call creator Abba or father or mother or creator or something else, we trust that we are together reaching out, calling out to our parent and when we understand the spirit of this prayer that says we are kin, we are family, it is within the spirit of this prayer. It's within the spirit of even the, the scripture around it popping from that intimate Aramaic to that more formal Greek to, to show up with who we are, what we have inside of us. Now Jesus is teaching us to pray like revolutionaries and not like copycats. We don't need to repeat the words. We need to embody the spirit of liberation, the spirit of justice for all, the spirit of trust in a parent. And those things are things that we move in and out of on the daily, right? These are things that we want to cultivate in ourselves. Saying this prayer can be a part of that. But the point is to root ourselves in a spirit of joy and liberation, connection and hope not to copy the words on the page and show that we're good kids and prove our performative energy on the streets. In that spirit, I'm going to end today by sharing with you a number of different interpretations and translations of this prayer. So the one that we offer on the screen here usually is our Father or our Creator or our Mother or our Abba in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. Will Gaffney, who, uh, in whose lectionary we are right now, um, she, this came up in the lectionary, that's why we're on it, um, and you heard her translation of this passage. She translates it as, Our parent and provider in heaven, holy is your name. May your majestic rule come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive also our debtors. Do not bring us to the time of trial and rescue us from that which is evil. She offers another interpretation 
This one more interpretation than translation, actually, by the Benedictine women of Madison. There's a really bomb uh, monastery, uh, Holy Wisdom Monastery, just outside of Madison. Cool, radical, formerly, because they were kicked out, Catholic women uh, who are just incredible. And they, they wrote something so powerful that it made its way to Will Gaffney, and she included it in this lectionary. They entitled this The Prayer of Jesus, And they say it as, Holy One, our only home. Blessed be your name. May your day dawn. Your will be done here as in heaven. Feed us today and forgive us as we forgive each other. Do not forsake us at the test, but deliver us from evil. For the glory, the power, and mercy are yours now and forever. Amen. I don't know about you, but that hits me a little bit different. That's calling on metaphors and images that that capture, I believe, the radical spirit of this prayer more effectively for me. And I'm going to share with you one final interpretation of this prayer. It's from Reverend Yolanda M. Norton. She wrote it for her Beyonce Mass. Our mother, who is in heaven and within us, We call upon your names. Names, I love that. Your wisdom come, your will be done in all the spaces in which you dwell. Give us each day sustenance and perseverance. Remind us of our limits as we give grace to the limits of others. Separate us from the temptation of empire and deliver us into community. For you are the dwelling place within us, the empowerment around us, and the celebration among us, now and forever. Amen. Now the band is here because they think that I'm done. But they don't know. They don't know I got more to tell you. These prayers. You're right, like 97%. No, no, no. I'm not done. I'm not done. Because we have to talk about how each of these ends. In the scriptures, you may have noticed that it ends with deliver us from evil. Walk away. But there have been traditions over and over, included in the one from uh, the, the women at um, Holy Wisdom and Reverend Norton in the Beyonce Mass that end with some declaration of yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's not in what Jesus told us to do. Now we always tack it on like it was. And that's because Jesus is coming in and saying, hey, this is what I'm offering. And this, this last part, this is our bit. This is the yes and. This is the thing that we offer back to God who taught us to pray. Yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We see that phrase throughout scripture. It's at the end of Hebrews. And it's got a nice ring. It wraps it up, right? But we often say that word amen without knowing exactly what it means. Amen means something sort of literally like may it be so or let it be so or so say we all if you're a Battlestar Galactica fan. May it be so is kind of like, you know, que sera, sera. But 
I think that amen here really means something else, and we see it throughout the scriptures. Rather than may it be so, it's more like so it is. So it is. It's a declaration of reality. We actually see it a few verses before Jesus teaches us how to pray when he's talking about those uh, prayers that are like not that good, (laughs) where he's like, don't pray like the hypocrites, all right? They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners so that people will see them. I assure you, that's the only reward they'll get. The word that he's using here for I assure you is amen. Amen. That's the only reward they'll get. Now, that word amen shows up in the Bible a lot, actually, and it's translated, and it's not just amen most of the time. If it's not at the end of the statement, it usually is the beginning of Jesus saying something. And it's like, listen, right? It gets translated a lot as truly I tell you. Or if you like your Jesus with a little bit of anachronistic medieval European vibes, verily, (laughs) right? Amen. In Hebrew, it means truth. So to me, that sounds like true, true. Let me tell you, let me tell you. And then I tell you, and you're like, true. True. That's what amen means. And in this spirit of revolutionary prayer, what we are practicing in doing this, we are modeling ourselves off of the prayers of Scripture. The prayers of Scripture that are so bold, right? Mary's Magnificat is one of the boldest prayers in Scripture. And Mary says things like, God has cast the mighty down from their thrones. God has lifted up the lowly. It's not God will. It's not God is doing. It's God has done this. Which is a tough thing to say under empire. But it is a promise. It is a declaration of truth. It is a hope saying, hey, this kingdom, it's already and it's not yet. We believe this prayer is happening as we say it. We believe that God's revolutionary spirit is alive and well. We believe that liberation has happened and we get to be a part of it. Liberation now, our Father providing for us all. True, true. And so as we pray as we enter into this radical revolutionary prayer, and if you want to go further than Our Father, read that book, or maybe we'll bring out that seven-week series again. But it's an incredible prayer. And when we declare God's love, we end with offering it back to God and saying, true, we believe. Is it, it, is, it is so already, already alongside, not yet, already alongside our efforts to make it true. God is here with us. God is making liberation happen now. We are claimed as children of God. True. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, teach us to pray in every way we can. God, may we accept your words as an example, as an offering, as an invitation into revolutionary spirit. God, may we have the power of your words behind us as we choose new words to express your eternal truths. May we declare them with confidence. May we, like Mary, name the radical future as though it is now. God, may we pour our hearts into your love, not investing ourselves in the lies and temptations of empire, God, but offering ourselves to one another in a truly holy and loving community. 
God, we strive and we strive, and yet we also say, amen, amen. Listen, it is true, it is happening. We are here, we love you, amen.